is AI generated data, personal data. And can AI generated data cause copyright issues? I mean, if AI generates data based on my copyrighted content, who has the copyright, I or the AI writer? Well, that's an interesting question, right? Indeed it is. And then how do we answer these questions? Because on one hand, you need the technical understanding of these questions. On the other hand, you need the understanding of law and also of AI and privacy. And we've got exactly someone like that. We have someone who has a PhD, who has a law degree, who understands the technology, who's a software developer. He understands patents, data, AI, open source and everything. And I'm talking about none other than Eva Emanuelov. And Evo Emanuelov is going to help us answer these questions. So let's go and talk to him. Hello, and welcome to the Fit for Privacy podcast with Punit Bhatia. This is the podcast for those who care about their privacy. Here, your host, Punit Bhatia, has conversations with industry leaders about their perspectives, ideas, and opinions relating to privacy, data protection, and related matters. Be aware that the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are not legal advice. Let us get started. So here we are with Ivo. Ivo, welcome to Fit for Privacy podcast. Thanks, Puneet, for having me. Uh, it's great to be here today, and I'm very pleased to feature on the Fit for Privacy podcast. It's a pleasure to have you. Let's start with a simple question. You are an expert in AI, privacy, and all these things. When you think of AI, artificial intelligence, we know, what's the one word that comes to your mind? So um, it's actually beneficial applications and opportunities as opposed to risks. I, I think that AI is, is a very promising technology, has been for a number of years. And with the recent advances, with the recent advances in, in computation and uh, the availability of, uh, of the hardware resources and, and, and data, obviously, uh, I see many opportunities for AI to actually benefit uh, people, but only if it's done uh, the right way, in a responsible way. That's very well said. If you do AI in a responsible way, it will benefit, but we need to keep the control. But before we get into that, I mean, AI has been evolving and so has been privacy. So how have you seen the evolution of AI and privacy over the last few years, especially with the, the big tech coming up in a big way? Well, the significant leap uh, in, in the capabilities of, um, of present-day AI, what we call AI today, is I think owing largely indeed to the scaling of hardware innovations of GPU availabilities, and then the success of the Transformers architecture, which is known from the famous paper by, by a team of Google researchers called Attention is All You Need. So the, the Transformers actually would not have been possible, however, without the insights that we, we gained from, from earlier atten attempts to tackle these sequence-based uh, problems of really generating the next uh, most likely uh, token. So we have recurrent networks be before that and long-term short memory, uh, short-term memory, which are different approaches to, to, to deep learning. So transformers really have unlocked uh, new possibilities in AI research and, and applications, but have also 
quickly raise concerns about the the responsible use of personal data specifically and um, essentially the the data protection concerns i think privacy concerns are similar to to all deep learning architectures but the scale and capabilities of uh, of language models have, have actually taken this center stage so to me there are basically three sets of concerns that follow sort of the the life cycle of a typical machine learning application and the first the first concern that i have is um, actually it emerges already at the the model training uh, phase so many training data sets consist of obviously publicly available data which almost inevitably would include some form of, of personal data. This could be, for instance, think of research papers that have may, might have been mined. Well, in each of these research papers, you would have the names, the contact details, the affiliation of the researchers that are named as, as authors. So that's just one example. And uh, for most commercially successful models, like, for instance, GPT-4, we do not even have the slightest idea of what exactly went into the training uh, set. Why is that? It's because the, the transformer models are actually uh, initially pre-trained on massive data sets in an unsupervised way. So this means there is basically um, uh, no way to practically discern what, what is personal, what from the personal from non-personal data. And also the, the legal criteria that we have for distinguishing personal from non-personal data are notoriously difficult to apply to actual practical situation. So, you know, even if a piece of, of information is believed to not be personal data, uh, when you link it to, to some other sort of a part of information, a uh, piece of information, then you could actually have uh, uh, personal data. So one problem here would obviously be the lawful ground for processing. On what grounds can uh, companies process these data? And when Ensure, as, as you very well know, and, and the listeners of our podcast, um, when, when companies are unsure of what to do, they typically tend to rely on legitimate interests to, to, to justify processing operations. But the problem is that uh, precisely because training data sets are so massive, it's not easy to justify why, on balance, the controller's legitimate interest would trump those of, of data subjects. On the other hand, you know that consent would be almost impossible to apply in this context, precisely because of the scale. And, and, and the same likely goes also for, for, other, for, for the other lawful grounds that we have. So I'll, I'll get back to, to this narrowing down of the, I call it freedom to operate of controllers, uh, if we have the time for it. But I think that that's detrimental to both businesses and, and data subjects. And then the second set of concerns actually con uh, relates to, to the phase of processing the actual personal data provided by users. Uh, in an already deployed service. So these can vary from account-related data, such as IP address, uh, to data provided by the user them, themselves in uh, in the prompt. So when you formulate your question or request to, do, to the model. And then the third set of concerns emerges from, from the processing of, of personal data for advertising purposes, obviously, uh, by the applications that create the interface between the model and the user. And we have all the, the, the full scope of concerns that emerge with up tech, namely transparency, data transfers to third countries, and so on and so forth. So I think these are really, in a nutshell, the main concerns that, that we have today with these uh, forms of generative AI that we see in the headlines every day. That's for sure. And I think from organizations, yes, 
finding the legitimate ground for processing and distinguishing between private and non-private data or personal and non-personal data is a concern. But how does it challenge an individual then? So you, me, or anyone uh, sitting here, how does it create a challenge in our privacy? Like in uh, scary terms, sometimes we say, is AI going to eat our data or uh, eat our personal data? Indeed. Well, to me, Personally, the biggest challenge for the privacy of individuals is that unlawful data processing may take place on a massive scale. And data subjects have really little, little room for maneuver. They, can, they have very little tools to find out if that's actually happening. So imagine a 180 billion parameter model that's virtually impossible to detect uh, if personal data of individuals have been processed to, without a lawful ground. And, and I'm not saying that companies will, will with all companies will do that. Uh, I'm just saying that the, the architecture of the transformer models makes it a tempting, a tempting opportunity to obfuscate one illegal's uh, use of personal data. Simply, you're simply hiding the fact that you've, you've misused uh, personal data of individuals behind the complexity of the model. And uh, the, the, the unfortunate uh, consequence, I think, of such a turn of events would be nearly complete loss of autonomy online. And uh, related to that, uh, I think there is another concern that I'm actually really worried about. And that's the, the, the opportunity for personalized deception and fraud. So, you know, it's been proven that, that generative AI applications are capable of deceiving individuals very successfully, not only by means of deep fakes, but also, for instance, in conversational chatbots, to the extent that some people forget that they're not uh, communicating with, with a human being. Um, then there is, of course, the, 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 the success of, of large language models that, um, that has spelled sort of the death, at least that's how I see it, that they have spelled the death of, of consent as a lawful ground for processing of personal data because of the impossibility to meaningfully to meaningfully consent for this type of large-scale processing and uh, even though the practice of the the european court of justice and, and of supervisory authorities have have changed over the years to downplay sort of the role of consent as a primary lawful ground for processing of data i'd like to stress that we that, that this is still uh, the, the first of several lawful grounds listed in, in Article 6 of the GDPR. And I'm, I'm not sure anymore if, if consent is actually a viable lawful ground at all in the, in the age of generative AI. And typically, uh, it's also what I advise my, my clients, that they should actually avoid it unless, unless absolutely necessary. And this is sad. I think that's sad because um, consent has always been a cornerstone of data protection law. And it's one that's linked to, to the idea of personal data as an inseparable part of, uh, of one's personality and the personal autonomy that allows us to, to decide how this data should be used or not used. So if we don't have consent, I think that this is really uh, interfering with the very essence of, of personal data as, as an expression indeed of one's, uh, of one's individuality and personality. Yeah. But uh, you mentioned one thing called generative AI, right? right? So I know there are lots of uh, confusion around what is generative AI and everyone seems to be having own definition of generative AI. 
how do you describe generative AI? Because not everyone would be comprehending, comprehending what do we mean by generative AI? Would you like to elaborate on that? Absolutely. So technically, technically speaking, it's it's not that that complicated. So it's really calculating, computing the probability of the most uh, of the next most likely uh, uh, token in a sequence of tokens given a context. That's really all all uh, generative AI is about. It's a statistical method of calculating probabilities. It has nothing to do with with intent. It has nothing to do with um, actual meaning implied by by humans as we do when we when we compose text. It has nothing to do with um, any sort of creativity, if you wish. So really, it's um, it's just a, a statistical method. I, I very much like to to think of it as uh, as just a, a multi-dimensional uh, as a calculation, multiplication of, of multi-dimensional matrices. But that's it. It's not more than that. It's just very complex math, uh, one that's automated and one that mimics very well what uh, what we can produce in terms of uh, of human ingenuity as text, video, uh, photos, and so on. So it can mimic this very well, but it has no understanding whatsoever of of what the underlying uh, um, generated uh, artifact is, whether it's an image, text, or something else. So it's really, uh, that's how I, I'd like people to think about it. It's not magic. Uh, it doesn't have feelings. It doesn't have understanding. It's simply a very, very efficient uh, uh, machine that can mimic the way we we interact with the world, in a sense, and the way we produce uh, language, basically, and also visual uh, visual content. So the automation of the automation, that is, exactly. when the machine starts to think on its own and make conclusions about you, that's the generative AI. So yes. you give an algorithm and a data to a machine, then based on what you do with it, it generates new, new data. And when it uses that data, the generated data, that's the generative AI because that's on the generated data. Exactly, yeah. So that's fascinating. Then it's very interesting because you see the transformation of. Uh, so, for instance, you could you could train your model on on code. You could have a big uh, repositories, uh, big repository of code. You could train it on code, and then this code becomes data when you uh, when you use it as to train a machine learning model. And then when it generates new artifacts, it actually this data again becomes code. So you see how code becomes data, becomes code, becomes data, and so on. It's a, it's basically a, an endless cycle. But then this generative AI, so let's say uh, I write a book and generative AI reads it and makes some conclusions and starts uh, suggesting those. Now, who has the copyright of it? Is there a copyright issue? Because it's my copyright on the book. Is it the AI copyright? How does it, or does it create copyright infringement? So that's a, a million dollar question that is now pending before multiple courts uh, across the world, not just in, in Europe or the US. I think we, we are seeing this also in other jurisdictions. My personal view of this is that uh, if copyright subsists in the first place in what is being produced, then this copyright belongs to the author who generated it. So I type a prompt and based on this prompt, an image is then generated. Mm -hmm. um, if you were to read, for instance, the terms and conditions of, um, let's say, ChatGPT uh, or DALI uh, or other generative systems, you would see that even in the terms of con and conditions, it's mentioned that 
whatever intellectual property rights subsist in the general rights subsist in the generated content uh even if it uh, subsist with with the creators of the model they automatically uh, assign it to you so you get the rights over uh, over this content so the pain principle is that whatever happens authorship can only be channeled uh, through a human being and it ha you have to find a human in the in the pipeline and assign the copyright to to them but copyright cannot uh subsist uh in uh, um, in let's say content that does not have any human uh um, contribution to the to the process so you need to have some some minimal contribution in the uk for instance we have these specific provisions for computer generated works where uh instead of relying on the originality criterion that we know from from copyright law the the uk act uh, provides that so long as the author has uh, exercised uh, some form of orchestration or has sort of um, channeled the computer to produce one uh, one type of, of, of work or another, uh, then copyright will subsist uh, regardless of the of the absence of any original contribution by the human. So we have some legislations across the world that try to deal with this. But to my view, unless you see um, very direct uh, verbatim, word by word reproduction, uh, you can hardly speak of freely, uh, freely copyright infringement. And why is that? It's precisely because of this technical process that I mentioned. The fact that if you take an image and you use it as training data, what the model, uh, what the model, the training algorithm will get is not really the actual image, but rather pixels, millions of, of pixels of that image. And then it will use them to compute probabilities. So um, it's very hard to argue that this transformation of, of an image into a, a, a set of uh, uh, matrices, basically, uh, or embeddings, whatever we want to call them, uh, is sufficient. To, to argue that it's still the same object. It's just numbers, really. When, when a photo becomes just numbers, unless you have a reliable way of going back from the numbers to the photo, I don't think you can, you can argue that there is infringement. I know that people from the creative industries will not be happy with what I'm saying, but it's my, my personal view. No, no, I, I think it's very clear what you say. If there's a substantial evidence that the outcome or the output is based on something which was copyright of an individual, then the copyright applies. But it gets complex when it's not directly evidentiable because end of the day data or images can get interpreted. And how do you uh, justify that it was actually the copyright of the author or not, especially let's say the painter or somebody, but then that's a different dimension and that's the complexity we are talking about and that's why we need all these laws and so many lawyers for that but Indeed. if we look at that then generative ai can also generate data based on personal data it now can. it can indeed and now we say uh, that personal data which is relatable to somebody is personal i mean any data that's relatable to someone is personal data now is the generated data personal data and if it is isn't it creating confusion and uh, also challenge in terms of privacy of an individual 
You're absolutely right. Um, in fact, generated data or synthetic data, as we call them, uh, has been thought of as uh, some sort of a messiah and the solution to all problems, uh, you know, a panacea, a solution to all, prob to all problems relating to the use of actual real world data from individuals. But indeed, it has been proven that generated data can also contain personal data because models are known to uh, memorize some uh, some specific types of information. And again, when it's memorized and it's reproduced, um, models have been prompted uh, and successfully in reproducing actually uh, real personal data about, uh, about real individuals. So when we have that, we, we have a clear problem. Uh, and obviously for generated data, this can be, this can be minimized probably with uh, some sort of sanitization mechanisms. We, we have this, the duplication of data in the, in the pre-training process to make sure that really your model will not see the same piece of data thousand times. So if it does, then there are chances. Uh, again, this is, there, is a, there is a mathematical explanation behind that but there is a chance that your model might actually remember it. Uh, and if it memorizes it, then it's very, uh, it's not impossible to, to also reproduce it. And then whether it generated or not will not matter because you will clearly have uh, personal data about uh, a real person uh, that you're processing and you obviously will have to comply with, uh, with the requirements. But synthetic data are promising. Uh, it's just that they're not uh, the ultimate solution. It's not, um, it's not possible to simply rely on synthetic data. Also, um, people from industry say that much as they they find them beneficial, synthetic data actually nowhere close to to real world data because again, it's it's generated. It's just uh, it's constrained by the mathematics that defines uh, deep learning. Yeah, no, I mean it's confusing in a sense. Because if from personal data, you're creating data that is linked to the person, then of course it's personal and then it falls in the purview of the GDPR or the, any other privacy law. But if you're creating data based on a personal data, which is not being linked to the person, but for any other purpose, then it falls in the uh, realm of anonymized or pseudonymized data exactly. or maybe synthetic data, which you're going to use for purposes other than where the person is being impacted. So Indeed. it is a fascinating area of conversation, if I may call it. And you mentioned earlier, the freedom to operate is inhibited. Yes. Right? So what do you mean by that? Uh, would you want to elaborate on that? Absolutely. Um, so this freedom of operate is actually something we use in patent law uh, to find out uh, when an inventor wants, for instance, to, to launch a new product, they, keep, they conduct a freedom to operate analysis to see whether they would be infringing on somebody else's patents. And I like to, to, to use this, this phrase, which, is, which has an established meaning in patent law, also to, to companies that have data-intensive businesses. Um, so the freedom of operate basically uh, is, is becoming increasingly limited by, by, on one hand, the practice of the, the Court of Justice uh, of the European Union and on the other supervisory authorities. Let's take, for example, the, the latest decision uh, in, in the case of Meta versus uh, Bundeskartellamt case against the competition authority. So the court in this case significantly limited uh, Facebook's legitimate interest to, to process the user's personalized um, social network data. And in fact, 
impose limitations and strict requirements for how you can op uh, obtain lawful consent uh, for a company dominant on the market. So again, these competition concerns are now playing uh, a growing role also in assessing um, data protection compliance of companies. So the, the court in this case considered that the user's interest in fundamental rights override the interest of, of the controller meta in the case. Um, to engage in personalized advertising and because there is a significant impact on the users because uh, there is this feeling of being con continuously monitored which uh, which trumps any other uh, legitimate interest that that meta might have now uh, what, what why am i saying this because this probably makes sense in fact when you think of companies as big as meta uh, obviously they are dominant on a particular market uh, and we know they've been engaged in, let's call them suspicious, dubious practices at the very least. Meta, however, is a gatekeeper uh, anyway under the Digital Markets Act. And it's uh, anyway under an obligation to obtain consent from users to process their personal data for, for the purpose of providing online advertising. And that's why, to me, this, this actual limitation that we have now imposed uh, uh, on the use of legitimate interest as a lawful ground has little impact on meta, but that's not the case for other organizations. Um, for those other organizations, this ruling is actually a reminder that of how complicated the balance of, of legitimate, of their legitimate interest against uh, those of, of the individuals uh, can be, and, and if necessary, how to uh, implement safeguards and to document these, these legitimate interest assessments. But to me, this is becoming uh, an increasingly complex and, and costly exercise for most small and medium enterprise businesses. So perhaps I'm over-exaggerating a bit, but it seems to me that with the GDPR, uh, we are not really uh, capturing enough the harmful activities of big tech companies, while at the same time, our own European companies are struggling to find uh, meaningful ways to, to comply. And um, it's something I hear a lot from, from my own uh, clients, for instance, who often tell me, well, why don't you just give me a playbook by which to, to, to play? And uh, it's really hard to come up with a playbook <laughs> when when everything is constantly changing, like literally every week, we have a new ruling that somewhat uh, adjusts uh, or sometimes even dramatically reverses the, the established understanding of how, of how things work. So to me, that's, um, that's not okay, really. And uh, I think that um, the, 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 the fact that companies struggle is, is not, uh, leads ex essentially to, to, to this, the, the whole compliance process becoming a, a checklist exercise. Uh, I've had clients asking, for instance, can you give me the, just the policy? I just need the policy in case the supervisory authority someday knocks on, on our door. And uh, the lack of understanding of, of what is required is sometimes really this basic. And, to be honest, uh, I'd like to see regulators engaging more, supervisory authorities engaging more with more proactively with the business to actually help them um, achieve the, the mutually beneficial goal of, of using data responsibly. Yeah, I think I agree with you when you say that uh, the regulation is creating a compliance burden and a significant compliance burden on uh, the small and medium enterprises. I was talking to a small bank 
and they were telling me that they're spending almost 80% of the time and they're small bank, less than 10 people and 80% of their time on making sure that they are compliant with the regulations and having this sufficient documentation. Now, if you're spending 80% of time as a bank on compliance, when do you go to the customer? Exactly. And then would it not impact your bottom line? And if it does, then where does that money come from? So it's being counterproductive and maybe the intention of the regulator is not to put burden, but to make sure things are happening in the right way. But at the moment, the balance is a little bit off. It's not in a balanced state. Exactly. And, and I'd like to, to add to that, in fact, to, to say that we should not forget that the GDPR is built around the idea of risk. But to me, this concept of risk should not be, when we speak of risk, we should not think of some far-fetched hypothetical risks and scenarios. Instead, we should really be aware of, of the real, actual, present-day risks and not accordingly to these risks. Because uh, compliance at the end of the day is all about risk management. And the, the law is not here to remove all risks. That's impossible. Uh, but to ensure that the most significant risks are really will never materialize because they would be uh, very harmful to the essence of the fundamental right to data protection. So to me, that that's the very pragmatic view, which unfortunately I see uh, less and less among people engaged, at least perhaps probably academically, uh, but not only. I also get this vibe, let's say, from, from supervisory authorities. And I think that's not really the direction we should be, we should be heading. No, I think something needs to change. And maybe a hypothetical question then, uh, probably. Can AI be the solution for this privacy protection or even the compliance burden in the larger sense? Absolutely. Um, I've helped companies build AI systems for, for enhanced privacy and, um, and security protection. And I know that with the appropriate guardrails, these, the risk actually is minimal while the benefits are, are immense. So, to me, AI is, a, is really a helpful tool uh, that can, for example, uh, help with the automation of certain processes for compliance. So that's one hand on one hand from, from the compliance side of things. But on the other, you can actually use it as a very helpful technical tool. For instance, you can use it to detect vulnerabilities in your code before, before you deploy a product. Very helpful. Uh, AI is, is very well fit for this type of exercise. Um, it can also detect proactively security incidents that may, for instance, require a notification uh, breach under the, the data breach notification regime of the GDPR. And, you know, sometimes organizations need, need a little bit more time to really make the assessment. Is this something we should, we should notify to the supervisory authority or not really? And AI can help with this. So it can provide a preliminary assessment. Obviously, you will always need to have a human at the end uh to to review the decisions and, and suggestions and so on but i see it definitely uh as, as useful in that in that respect and another thing is um i think we'll see uh we'll see new new privacy preserving algorithms developed with the help of ai so last year for example uh we saw google announcing uh its alpha tensor model so that's basically the first AI system for, for discovering new novel algorithms to, to perform some fundamental tasks, such as, for instance, matrix multiplication. And I see tremendous opportunities for, for using AI specifically in the field of privacy enhancing technologies. 
obviously the other side of that coin is that uh, the threshold, the entry barriers becomes uh, uh, the entry barriers become um, significantly lower. So that enables also malicious actors to to easily, more, at least more easily, create and deploy malware. So you you will always have to uh, use AI on one hand to to protect, uh, and on the other hand, and, and enable opportunities. But on the other hand, also to defend from from such malicious actors. I'm fully in agreement with you, and there are many, many, many new use cases coming up for the use of AI but it certainly can be beneficial for protection of privacy, protection of copyrights, protection of everything. I mean, if used in the right way, as you said at the right start, if you use it responsibly, there are many, many opportunities that AI creates. But the challenge is to use it in a responsible manner. But uh, if I may ask you a personal question in that sense, do you use anything AI-based in your own situation to, uh, in your day-to-day -day life? So, I have to be honest that I was uh, a very keen uh, early adopter of uh, of the GPT family of models. So, for instance, yeah. when Microsoft launched this its Bing chat uh, earlier this year, I was very keen to, to explore. And I have to admit, probably for a week, I was using it for a lot of things just to see the limits. And uh, But over time, I really lost interest in, in most of what it can offer. Um, sometimes it's helpful if you, for instance, uh, experience a writer's block and you want to write a piece, but you're not exactly sure where to start from. So you could ask it and it could give some pointers that you can hook onto and build your own structure. But I honestly, as a, as a lawyer, but, uh, but also as someone who is technically qualified, I don't see myself using that uh, a lot. Because I'm not, I'm not a big believer in in the in the statement that large language models are the ultimate form of AI. I think that's just an intermediary stage that probably will uh, give uh, companies a lot of competitive advantage for the next five uh, to to ten years at most. But it will eventually be be superseded by by further advances, hopefully, because I think language models are important. AI, but they are not. Uh, they are not really the AI we we all think of when when people speak of existential risk and so on. That's nowhere close to to this level of AI that uh, that that would present such such risks um, for uh, for humanity. Basically, I agree with you. I mean, in my opinion as well, AI is in its infant stage, so it's just starting to crawl, just starting to be there. We don't know what its potential is and we don't know how to use it. But the next, uh, I would say 10 to 15, maybe 20 years would be really key in terms of how do we leverage. I mean, of course, I'm a firm believer that humans, if they think for themselves, have a place to stay. That AI cannot replace, but Absolutely. AI has a lot to contribute and support us. Indeed. By the way, if someone wants to contact you, I mean, you mentioned that you have some clients. So two parts, what can clients contact you for and how can your clients or people after listening to this podcast contact you? So um, you can find me on, on LinkedIn, you can find me on, on most actually uh, popular platforms. 
And uh, the type of work that I do for clients is uh, basically all around compliance uh, in the field of, uh, I like to call it in the broader field of, of AI, but typically I have consulted um, all types of, of technology stacks that may comprise simple systems like simple filing systems for a, for a medical center to uh, complex uh, interconnected, for instance, uh, manufacturing facilities of uh, of big companies. So I I, I advise all, all sizes of uh, all sizes of companies. I like to prioritize startups because to me they they offer the most exciting type of work and, and also raise very often the most uh, most exciting questions for somebody who's also curious to see how how the law would apply to these uh, revolutionary technologies. But anything that goes from data protection to, to intellectual property, um, I'd be happy to help anybody who's uh, who's interested in my, my expertise. That's so nice of you. So it was wonderful to have you, Evo. Thank you so much for sharing your thoughts and inputs. Thanks for having me. It's been a great pleasure. And uh, I, I cannot wait to, to uh, listen to the upcoming episodes of uh, Fit for Privacy. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you liked the show, feel free to share it with a friend and write a review. If you have already done so, thank you so much. And if you did not like the show, don't bother and forget about it. Take care and stay safe. Fit for Privacy helps you to create a culture of privacy and manage risks by creating, defining, and implementing a privacy strategy that includes delivering scenario-based training for your staff. We also help those who are looking to get certified in CIPPE, CIPM, and CIPT through on-demand courses that help you prepare and practice for certification exam. Want to know more? Visit www fitforprivacy.com. That's www.fit, the number four, privacy.com. If you have questions or suggestions, drop an email at hello at fitforprivacy.com. Until next time, goodbye.